You are listening to audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church on the corner of Ebenezer Baptist and Pleasant Green Road. If you would like to learn more about our church, please go to ebcconnect.org. Now, here's our pastor with this week's sermon. Uh, we're going to try something real quick. So um, the, the group that sings out here, praise team, would you guys come back for just a second? We're going to, if we could do the... Um, the last song we did, congregation song. Sure. Yeah. All right, so, so here's, here's the deal. Um, this is what it says in, in Psalm 57. And, uh, and this is one of those deals where we, we kind of need to, um, on this day where there's some time change and everybody's a little, uh, and I, I know there's an official word for that, but that's all I could come up with. This is what we're going to do. Um, Chuck, we're going we're gonna to crank it up like we're waking up the soundboard this morning, okay? So that's, that's going to be the first part. And then this is what it says in Psalm 57. It says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. So that, that part's okay. And then it says, I will sing. Awake, O harp and lyre. The dawn. On if get into this and we before we start first Peter and all that's involved in that I want Oh 
glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. For even in your suffering, you saw to the other side. Knowing this was our salvation, Jesus, for our sake you died. that stone was moved for good for the lamb had conquered death and the dead rose from their tombs and the angels stood in awe for the souls of all who come to the father are restored and the church of christ was born then the spirit lit the flame now this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint by his blood and in his name in his freedom i am free for the love of jesus christ who has resurrected me to the King of Kings. Yes, give him a hand clap of praise. Yeah. Feel better? All right. You know, it's, it's interesting when we start to look at God's Word and the things that, 
that it says and how we're to respond. And I, and I kind of wonder about this group that Peter writes to in First Peter when they're listening or reading through this letter. Because it's likely that they gathered around and read this letter and they probably read it out loud in a small group or in small groups. And as they looked at it, they, they probably were thinking to themselves, does Peter have any clue what I'm going through or what I'm feeling at this particular moment? And we could really, if we understand Scripture, because Scripture is born out of the heart of God, it's written by man, but inspired by God, and it's God-breathed, it's, it's inerrant in its very nature, and it reveals the character of God and the person of God. And so when, when this letter is sent to these exiles and, and from Peter, and they're reading through it, do you, do you ever wonder whether they're kind of pushing back on the letter, pushing back on Peter, but at the same time pushing back on God a little bit? Saying, you know what, I see what you're saying, but I'm not sure that I agree with everything you're saying. And, and we wrestle with that, don't we? There are some things in Scripture that we push back on. In fact, there are denominations that push back on whole sections of Scripture. And they say, we don't believe this, or we don't believe this. And they kind of pick and choose what they want to believe. And the truth is, if we take the whole of Scripture and try and apply the whole of Scripture to our lives, it is not super easy. It is somewhat difficult. Because there are times when, when we just have pressures or thoughts or, or whatever come into our lives and we go and we kind of put that up against what Scripture says and we will fight against it. It becomes a point of tension for us. And so we, we can push back and, and it's the, the same for these exiles. Now this is what the psalmist wrote in, in Psalm 14 because I, th I think it kind of goes with what we're talking about this morning. It says in Psalm 14, uh, verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then it says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds and there is none who does good. And so look at that and you go, whoa, wait a minute. What does that have to do with this? Well, as we get into this, you realize that when Peter's writing this to the exiles, we get that and we understand that some of this applies to us. And when we do not want to apply God's word to our life, when we push back on that, we are essentially saying, there is no God for me. We, we get in the place where we lift ourselves up into that position of God. And we decide whether either there's no God or I am God. And that's a dangerous place to be. And so when we read Scripture, we, we need to look at it and say, God, what do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do in this for me? Now, last week, we talked a, a little bit about voting and the responsibility that goes with that. And we, we said a couple of things. We said that we live in... A, a society that is quite toxic. But in that, we have responsibility as Christians to, to allow our voice to be heard or make our voice heard in different places. So we actually had a responsibility in the voting booth this week. 
And, and that's just the privilege we have. Now understand, the, the exiles, they, didn't, they did not necessarily have that. I mean, Nero was an emperor. He attained the throne. Kind of strangely, but he attained the throne. And, and so he was the law of the land. But when you live in a, in a place, a, a, re, a democratic republic, is that the way that works? Is that the right term? Something close to that? When you get to vote, you have responsibility. And we get, to, we get to say, this is what we believe based on the Word of God. We said that the Word of God is that, is that foundational piece for us when we walk into the voting booth. So everything that we vote ought to come through the Word of God. And so when we vote, we vote according to Scripture. And um, so we have that. And so God's Word becomes that filter for our political allegiances and the, and the design of our theology or doctrine. So we're going to go another step in this because Peter addresses a particular, particular piece of their life. And, and I want to be very, very careful with that because there are parts of this that don't seem to apply. When you, when you look at it and you say, wait, I don't see how that applies to me. In, in my situation, and you can read it certain ways, and you'll see that as we, as we read this scripture passage together. Uh, the premise for this, the, the thesis walking into this, is that our response to human authority is an indicator of how we will respond to divine authority. Our response to human authority is an indicator of how we will respond to divine authority. So think about that for just a moment. What are, and maybe we could go at it from looking at two questions that qualify or quantify this premise. What is an authority? What's an authority? And so I Kind of, kind of put it into two different categories. The, the first one is somewhat of an official capacity, such as a government, including public service figures, such as law enforcement. Then you have an employer, maybe in the realm of education, a teacher or a principal or a counselor, um, some kind of administrator, maybe a coach. Then there's pastors and elders and deacons. And say, we don't have elders here. I want to differ with you just a little bit. We have deacon elders, even though we just call them deacons. They have the responsibility of serving as elders. And we have a church staff that serves as pastors, elders. So there's some combinations here with the way our church polity is set up. But they would fall into that category. And they would be, and just as a a matter of speaking here, these are under the... um, uh, under the the framework of what Paul writes to Timothy and Titus. Maybe it's um, one of these authorities, or these authorities could be parents or grandparents or a guardian in the home. And say, well, what other kinds of authorities are there? There's unofficial types of uh, authorities, such as a team leader. Um, You may be a team leader and you obtain that position not because somebody named you that. You just are that. 
You have a personality that when you walk onto the field, there's a group of people that just generally follow. And so you have leadership, whether you like it or not. And so that would be an unofficial way to look at authority. And then the, the question is, what happens if I disagree with authority? Or disagree with the authority around me? And the truth is, likely you will. There's a really good chance, unless you work for yourself in a cubicle, cubicle and never leave that cubicle, then you will disagree with the leadership. And even in that cubicle, you may argue with yourself. You will likely disagree, but there are avenues for bringing alternative viewpoints or corrections to authority. Within government, it's voting. Within an employer, it, it may be a conversation that needs to take place. And it's not to, to say, I'm boss and you are not, and all of a sudden we need to do a role reversal. It's just a conversation that needs to take place to correct some things. And it may be a change in jobs. It may mean to personally change what you are doing or adjust. In the church, it's usually a conversation. And it wraps itself around a Matthew 18 principle where there may be a one-on-one -on -one discussion, but then there's the bringing in of one or two others for, for that correction that might need to take place. So that's certainly possible. And, and just as a caveat to this idea of church, because this is a church body and a church family, um, there is no room for disunity within the body. Because it hurts the cause of Christ. And I wrote this, and it's a relatively strong phrase. You don't want to be a catalyst for Satan to get a foothold in a church's demise. You do not want to be there. So guard unity. There is a place for dealing with authorities that are in place and doing it the right way. Each venue with its, with its authorities has a base guideline for operation. Um, the Constitution, our national Constitution, our Bill of Rights, the laws that we have. In, in employment, it's personal or personnel policies. And then in church, there's the Scriptures that we go to. So what are the bases for how we respond through Scripture. I'm going to go back to the, the original thesis. Our response to human authority is an indicator of how we will respond to divine authority. And so let me ask this question. What are the authorities that God has placed in your life? Or who are the authorities that God has placed in your life? And then I want to ask you something that's really short. And it's really simple. But it goes and it speaks to what we need to be thinking about all the way through this morning. If, if, that, if our response to human authority is an indicator of how we respond to divine authority. And God has placed certain, certain authorities in our life. The, the big question is why? Why? Because we can respond to human authority in such a way where we push back on it. And if God has brought that authority into that place, 
for His purpose? Are we not becoming like the one who is described in Psalm 14 that says there is no God because I'm it? You see what I'm saying? Is that when we put ourselves in that place, we become the authority and God has not placed us there. And so we have to be very cautious and aware of the authorities that God places in our life and ask the question, why has God placed that authority in our life? Because not everything necessarily needs to make sense or needs to be easy. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18. And would you stand as we read this together and then we'll pray. 1 Peter 2.18 says this, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But, what, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Let's pray. Father, as we look at what Peter wrote to the exiles, as you inspired him to pen these things for these folks that have been kind of put in a place of discomfort just by the persecution around them. And you, as you've placed them there, you've called them to be your witnesses there. Father, there are certain parts of this letter that are very uncomfortable. Father, when we talk about suffering, there's likely no one in this room that says, man, I'm just up for a little suffering today. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this and realize the example of Christ, that we will understand why there is suffering. And, Father, we will understand even as you describe it here in this context, that you would stretch us and grow us. And so, Father, we pray that, that you would speak, that your voice would be very clear. And, Father, how we respond will be a, in a manner which honors you and glorifies your name. And so, Father, continue to work in this place this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So as you read that, did you, did you push back a little bit at the very first part of it? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. So if we just take that at, at, surface, uh, at surface level, we say, well, well, I'm not a servant. I'm not a slave. I'm good. I can skip this part of Scripture, right? And I'm not sure that we can. Um, I know that there are some commentators that say, let's put this in the, in the realm of an employer-employee situation. But I think there's a bigger context in which we can look at this. Because the, the context of all of this has to do with suffering and authority. We just read in the previous section that God has placed the authorities around us in place for His purpose. And although we may not like it, and although we may push back on it, it's still God who places them there. And so we have to respond in a way that brings glory to God. So the first point this morning is, is that there is tension when responding to authority. It's the tension when responding to authority. Look what it says. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That word subject is a word that we've talked about already. It's that hypotasso, willing submission. It's in the immediate context of 1 Peter. It was a servant who lived in a household that was to fall under the authority of the master in the household. And they were, they, there was an understanding that there are two different types of masters. Uh, this word to, to have all respect just as an understanding of position or responsibility. It's translated fear, all respect or fear. I think pa Peter categorizes two types of masters in here. The good and gentle, which is pretty easy. They're fair, they're reasonable. It does not take away the fact that that authority may have required the master to say something to the servant that the servant didn't like. A good and gentle master or a good and gentle authority in this place does not mean that that person under that authority will like everything that is said or done. Just because you disagree with an authority does not make that an evil authority. The second part of this, or the second type of master, is an unjust one. And it's unreasonable. They, the Greek word here is skulios. S-K-O-L-I-O-S. And it means crooked or perverse. And you recognize it. It's where we get the, the word scoliosis. It means crooked or perverse. And so when we look at this, we say, okay, they're good and gentle masters in this passage, but they're those that are also crooked. There's a sideways curvature to their leadership that is not right according to Scripture. Other accounts of this word throughout the New Testament, it's usually in at least two other places, it's put in terms of a crooked and perverse generation. It says, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Look what Peter directs their thoughts toward. 
See, he he doesn't say that if you are under a master that is evil and crooked and perverse and unjust, that you should run away. It's not what Peter says. Yet Peter obviously recognizes that there are two different types of masters. And what does he say? Understand, being mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, It's a gracious thing when you do that. The idea is that you are to keep in mind that God has placed that authority in your life. And that's hard. When there is unjust unjust leadership or crooked leadership, it's really hard to be under that authority. But Peter points them back to being mindful of God. And would, would he understand that? Peter would. If you you jump back to Acts chapter 12, we're not going to read it, but just you can mark it down. This is at least a reference at one point in Peter's life. Um, Remember, James, James, the brother of John, was beheaded. He was killed by the the authorities, and the Jews kind of went, hey, we like this idea. And so what did they do? They grabbed Peter and threw him in prison. Now, now, there's a whole lot to that story. You can read it on your own. But, but just because he was associated with James and John, Peter was thrown in prison. Now, I've, I've been to some baseball games with some guys here. I've been to some basketball games with some guys in this room. Been, been on a golf course with some guys in this room. And associating with you has never got me landed in jail. And that's likely a good thing. But it's not got you beheaded either. So so that's probably good as well. Just hanging out with somebody got him in trouble. And that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Yet Peter is saying, with regards to authority, understand that there is good and bad. And in all of it, we need to be mindful of God. put less emphasis on the unjust authority and more focus and mind on God. Paul would say the same thing. Paul too would remind us that it's easily it's easy to be discouraged in the face of what seems unfair. This is what Paul knew about God. All things work together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28, the confidence is in what God will do, not in what man is doing. And so when we forget the bigger picture, the fact that God is present and is working in a situation, when we forget that, we tend to look at what is directly in front of us. That's unfair. We can do that in a lot of different places. People that have died that's for us seemingly sudden death and we did not expect it. Um, think about Nashville and the, the, the area surrounding Nashville. Does that seem very fair to you? Would it seem fair to the person who is just outside the path of the tornado to stand over here and go, they were wiped out and I was not? Boy, does that seem unfair. Or to the family member who has somebody in the, in the path of the tornado going, why did they get spared? They don't seem to be as good as my, my uncle was. That seems unfair. God, where were you? 
There's a whole lot of life that's unfair. And Peter is addressing this and saying, in anything unfair, be mindful of God. And in this context, with these authorities, understand that God is at work doing something that you may not understand. Ray Stedman wrote of the story of an imprisoned Swiss-French pastor during World War II, and he said this, I was not able to stand firm except by remembering every day that the Gestapo was the hand of God, the left hand. The worst tyrants will only end by accomplishing Christ's will. Man, that's hard to swallow. Because we sure don't see a group of people like that as the hand of God. We kind of get bent out of shape when it's a whole lot less than, than that kind of oppression or persecution. And they have to, the exiles had to put this in the context of Nero, too. It wasn't a whole lot different than the Gestapo, was it? And they've got to put it in that context. And in the context of really being seen as a threat to the society. It says, this passage uses the word endures or bear, to bear up under or uphold a burden. Verse 20, it says, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? That word beaten means beaten. And it's like, wait, you know, that sounds pretty harsh that a master would beat his servant. I get it. Uh, the the terminology is a little bit weird, but in the, in the culture, that particular culture of the day, harshness could have been very possible. And the way, the way I see this is more like what I see on NCIS. Is, um, is Gibbs coming up behind Denozo and just you know, whacking him on the back of the head. You know, it, it really doesn't matter how you view that. What it really is is the context of a, a master who is, who is putting on some kind of punishment it's here, it's, it's punishment. And, and honestly, we don't like to be reprimanded or chastised, whether we're doing good or bad. But in this particular thing, it says, when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure, what credit is it for you? Essentially, when you've messed up, you've messed up. And so how should you respond when you mess up and are chastised? Kind of have to take it, don't you? That's what Peter says here. This word sin just means to miss the mark. You've not done what you were asked to do. Therefore, you are reprimanded and chastised. And that, does not make, that does not make the master bad. But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. When we first moved to Florida... Back in 1978, I was 16 years of age. Um, we had a, a house that was about nine, 900 to 1,000 square feet. Um, it had a little shed out back with a garage, roll-up garage door. And we moved from a house in Cleveland that was quite a bit bigger, so we had a lot of things stored in the, in the shed, in the in little outbuilding. And uh, we had lived there for a while. 
And uh, I went out one evening. It was already dark, which was not really unusual to be out past dark in Florida. When it's warm all the time, you just stay out. And so I was outside and I heard some rustling back in the garage and went back to, to look and there was a golf cart outside the garage door. And I'm like, I don't know anybody with a golf cart beside, behind the garage or by the garage and didn't know who it was. And so I yelled, well, this person got spooked and they jumped in the golf cart and drove across the street, ditched the golf cart in a neighboring lot. And it was, there was a lot of undeveloped land and he took off into the palmetto bushes. Now I was 16 and I was all of a hundred, a mean 145 pounds. And um, so I took off after this guy. I don't know what I was going to do. There was a really good chance he was bigger than me, but I took off after him. And I went about 10 feet into those palmetto bushes and decided that was as far as I needed to go. And I came back out of those bushes and I was tackled by law enforcement and others. And I want to tell you, it was, it was pre-Christian. And so my vocabulary was salty. I came out of there, they held me down, and I had to explain that I was not the one driving the golf cart. If, if I was stupid enough to park the golf cart, run in there, and then run back out to you, I was a really dumb criminal. Um, and eventually they caught the guy. It was a guy that had been stealing golf carts and going and ripping off houses down, down several streets. But I came out of there, and they pinned me to the ground as I'm cussing like a sailor and just letting it fly and... Finally, I guess my dad came over and they got me off the ground and I explained what happened. But when I came out of those, out of those bushes and they tackled me, it was quite unfair. Not only was I outnumbered, but it wasn't me. I didn't steal anything. And so I did not respond well at all. And we have a choice we have a choice when we respond to authority. That's a bad example of responding to authority. But there are other times when I may even disagree with the authority and I've got to respond in a way that is mindful that God has placed them there. So there is tension when we're called to respond to authority and we need to be mindful of God's purpose, His story, and the fact that He receives glory when we do well in responding. The second thing, is the trust we discovered through our example, and that is Jesus. Have you ever felt called to suffer? I've not really heard of it, but where you, like, yeah, I feel called to be in a bad place of suffering. But here in verse 21, for, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Seems like that you, as exiles, as us, under the authority of God, have been called to suffer just like Jesus. That's what it looks like. Paul wanted to, to identify with Jesus in his sufferings. Philippians 3.10, that I, that I may have fellowship with his sufferings. And then in verse 22, it says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Another way, Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the beginning of that verse says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Jesus suffered for our sake. And he didn't complain about it. And if anybody knew what was fair and what was unfair, Jesus knew what was fair. And he knew that him being put on a cross like a criminal was an unfair thing. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus displayed two different forms of submission. First one is physical submission. He went to a cross. Very simple. Second one is spiritual submission. There was a connection to the Father. Look what it says. It says, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24 says, he bore our sin on the cross. Why did he do that? Because he knew the Father's plan. I mean, when Peter writes this, he's not somebody who doesn't have a connection to Jesus at all. He knows him quite well. And he knows the punishment part of this. There are two words that I want us to understand in this passage, and they go together, and we have to go back a little ways in verse 19 to see one of them, and the other one is in verse 24. The, the word that's translated bear up is hypophero. That's, that's the first one, and it's to be under a burden. It's to be something that you feel the weight of and are under. It's placed on you. The second one is anaphero in verse 24. And it means to carry a burden, but it means to take that burden on yourself. And in the case in this passage, what we see is Peter describing a people that are under the burden that has been placed on them. When he refers to Jesus, it is a burden which Jesus took on himself willingly for us. So Jesus gives us an example of how to respond when responding to authority, even if it's unfair. We are to be mindful of God's purpose, story, and His glory. Uh, there's, a, there's an easy way to look at this. We could look at it with the understanding that God is in charge, or we could look at it in ignorance or arrogance. Proverbs 30, starting at verse 11 and We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. But it says, There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty are their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. And another translation says that their eyelids are lifted or their eyes are lifted in arrogance. This is the idea when we, when we look at authority and we don't understand that God has placed it there, we look at it as something that we need to push back on in a big way 
and we don't recognize God, it's approaching it as if we are better. Third thing is the treasure of returning and healing. Verse 24, B says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. And so in that, we see, we see that word that or so that, and there, there's a process that Peter describes here. It's the process of dying to sin and living to righteousness. To, to walk away from that which displeases God. And here we're talking about missing the mark, but we're talking about missing the mark when it's compared to the standard of God's word and his character. Erasmus and Luther described sin as intellectual and linguistic laziness, self-exaltation and self-sufficiency. And so what we have to do is we die to sin and self and we live to righteousness. In other words, we do like, like some of our older students this morning in college age, you guys talked about living out through the identity of Christ, right? Because I didn't, you didn't. Okay, well, that's what I thought you were doing. Man, when you hear a plan at home and then it changes when you get, it messes things up. Um, but living out through the identity of Christ. You remember what Peter did early on? Remember what he called them? Holy nation, royal priesthood, a chosen people, God's own possession. We're to live from that new identity in Christ. When I was in high school, I lived a different identity. I lived an identity that sought after friends or to be in the right crowd, to, to play the right sports, to be in the right spot. When I went to college, I did the same thing. I went different places, but did the same thing, trying to find fulfillment. And yet what, the way Peter describes this, we, when we are dying to self and living to righteousness, we understand that we have been healed by God. By His wounds, we are healed. By His wounds, we carry a new identity. It's the, this word heal here essentially means that which was injured is brought back to fullness of health and able to do what it was designed to do. And so when we put that in terms of our life and living out the identity of Christ, we're talking about being, being in sin and being taken from that into life in Christ and now being able to live out in, and pursuing what God has designed us for. Verse 25, it says, For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That word return means to twist back. Romans 6 says, but thank, Romans 6, 17 says, But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Our life should be different. And in the context of authority, it means that we are mindful of what God has placed there. The way Peter describes this, for you were straying like sheep, 
but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. It's just another way of saying that in practical terms, you are falling under the authority of Christ first and allowing Him to be in charge. Does it remove the tension or discomfort or the struggle of being under an authority that we may agree or disagree with? No. It points us back to how we function within the difficulty for the sake of the gospel. And it's what the exiles needed to hear. Your life is going to likely be unfair and you have a choice. You're going to always be under some kind of authority and you have a choice. And if Peter is correct when he writes this and, and because it's inspired by God, we would say he is, that when you face those things, to be mindful of God so that the world around you sees how you respond to authority and therefore brings glory to God and points people to know Jesus. You think about the authorities that have been placed over you and around you. How do you respond to authority? I said at the very beginning that our response to human authority is an indicator of how we respond to divine authority. I think that's what we read here. Because if we have a hard time listening to the physical presence of authority in our life that God has placed there, and we can see that authority, if we don't respond well to what we see, how can we respond well to what we don't see? So this morning, I'm going to ask that question again. With the authorities that have been placed over you, why? What is God trying to teach you? What is He trying to grow in you? How is He sanctifying you? And with those things considered, are there some adjustments that are needed in your life in the way of behavior or physical submission or attitude, spiritual submission? And then the call is to return or twist back to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Because God has a bigger plan in mind. See, He is much more interested in your transformation than He is your comfort. He's much more interested in your inward than He is your ease. Second thing this morning, there may be some in here that are in need of salvation. This whole idea of Jesus going to the cross and dying is a little bit foreign. And if you don't know what that means, we'd love to explain that. See, God is inviting you to trust Him today with your life. To receive forgiveness of your sin. And to allow God to be the ultimate authority in your life for every day. So if you've never trusted Christ, I'd invite you to come to Him this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio from Ebenezer Baptist Church. We welcome you to join us next Sunday at 1030 a.m. for our weekly worship service.